Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening, and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue. Included with the podcast today, we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app, as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge, Jesus, or faith in general, we would love to hear from you, and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickle at crossbridgemiami.com or send us a text to our text-in number at 305 305- Nine three zero seven zero zero six. Once again, thank you for tuning in. And now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and, right, and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for this season, even though it can be exhausting and frustrating at times. There is also joy and hope and warmth and times like this where we can gather and we can sing and celebrate and even just have a moment to to glean at the community that you have promised us, that you've given us through faith and that you've ensured us is ours eternally. And so we, we thank you for this church and we thank you for each person here. We know that nobody is here by accident. And so we pray, God, that you would speak a fresh point of truth to, to each person here, Holy Spirit, that you would work in that way to see that you are, in fact, King of kings and Lord of our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing tonight? Okay. So uh, I guess we're going to cancel the party after service. Let's try that again. How's everybody doing tonight? That was better. Okay, that was better. And we got to wake up, guys. Listen, I may, I may go full in if the jacket comes off, and you guys, that means you're not awake enough, okay? So I may be getting in it. I want you, I want to participate. I want you to engage. Uh, we are celebrating something incredible tonight, and that is that Jesus Christ is Christ the Lord born to us. And so before we even jump into that is I want to encourage you to text into the, the number that is inside of your worship program. If you haven't done that already, the word hi, as Pastor Tommy said earlier, I encourage you to do that often. I think it's important. It's our digital program. There's many ways you can engage in the life of the church. There are a plethora of uh, sermon notes and additional notes there as well. But tonight in particular, I want to encourage you to text in because At some point in the sermon, we're going to be reading a longer passage of Scripture that will not be on the screen, and you're going to miss it if you don't see it in front of you. And so, really want to encourage you to text in so that we can engage and participate together. So tonight, we're beginning episode three of our Advent series, Hidden Christmas. And we began two weeks ago looking at the light of the world. 
Last week, we looked at the bloodline of Jesus, this peculiar passage of how Matthew starts his book in the New Testament. And tonight, we're looking at the non-glamorous king, Jesus, born king of kings in the most non-glamorous way. If you've been around the Christmas story in your life and you're familiar on any level, you know that there are three really important figures or characters in the story. Can you guess who the three men are that are really important? Because we're engaging here tonight. Come on. Who are the three? Wise men. Someone was like, wise men in the back. Okay. Like, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna participate here. The three wise men. Whoever said that, congratulations. You get a candy in the back after the service. The three wise men or the three magi are three really important characters in the story of Jesus' birth. And if you're familiar with it, there are these three kings. They're very wealthy. They're from the east, thousands of miles away from Israel and Jerusalem. And they travel following a star to Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews. Now, they've sacrificed a lot. They've gathered a lot of people, a caravan to travel a thousand miles following a star because God told them and stirred in their heart to follow to find a king in Jerusalem. So they arrive in Jerusalem and they meet King Herod. King Herod is there. He has no idea what's going on, but these three magi, these wise men, these kings come before him and say, hey, king, do you know where the child is that has been born king of the Jews? We have come here to worship him. Now the text tells us that Herod, upon hearing this, is deeply disturbed. He's deeply disturbed because he's the king of the region. The Roman government is ruling over Israel, but Herod rules this territory, and he's power hungry. And so he hears about a king that's been born, and it disturbs him, and it agitates him. And so he tries to kind of manipulate these three wise men, and he says, hey, you guys go find him. He's not here in Jerusalem. Go find him. And when you locate him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him as well. But see, we see from the back end that Herod's intention was not to worship Jesus. It was to destroy him, to kill him, this child. We're familiar with these elements of the story. Many of us grew up reading it. You've read the children's book. You can picture the three wise men. Maybe you've seen a play. Maybe you were a wise man in the play. Or maybe you were the camel. I don't know, you know. Maybe you had the whole headdress, the whole thing. You had no idea. Everyone wanted to be the wise men because they had the coolest outfits. But there's something that's taking place here that we have to step back and ask about this scene. See, they're traveling thousands of miles, gathering all their equipment and all their people and a caravan to bring gifts to worship a child who is being born in Israel. And they're following a star. Why? And why was Herod so disturbed? Now, Herod is disturbed when anyone wants to try to, to usurp his place as king or is a threat to power. But he's very disturbed and, and creates a plot to try to destroy this baby. It's because both Herod and the Magi, the three wise men, are familiar with the book of Isaiah. You see, these three wise men have gotten a hold of the Hebrew scriptures. They've come to believe in God, and they know the prophecies that are in Isaiah. Herod knows them too. And here's what Isaiah chapter 9 says in verse 6 and 7, as Nev just read. It says here, For unto us 
A child is born. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before that first Christmas when Jesus is born. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So they're familiar with this text. They know that there's a prophecy of a king that will come who has the names of God. Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That he is coming to establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace that will last forever. And it disturbs Herod because he thinks, could this be the one? And if it is the one, I don't want to be living in the time where I am taken off of my throne and he establishes a kingdom. And so I'm looking to destroy him while the Magi travel thousands of miles and bring gifts to worship him. Two very different reactions to this news. So we saw last week, Matthew begins his book, the Gospel of Matthew, in a very interesting way by revealing the bloodline of Jesus. Because in the first chapter, he wants you to see who Jesus is. That he welcomes all people because his bloodline is very unknown and it's very unlikely he has men and women, which is very rare. He has people of different races, which was very rare. He has people that are not exemplary. Murderers and adulterers and prostitutes in his bloodline. And yet what it's communicating is that Jesus welcomes all people. And so as he sets that up and he welcomes all people into his family by grace through faith, he shifts to the Christmas story. And he accounts from his perspective some, some key elements, because Matthew is writing his book to a Jewish audience, and he knows that they're going to understand a lot of these prophecies in the book of Isaiah. And so he talks about Mary, and he says Mary conceived a child that was through the Holy Spirit, and then Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant. Now they're engaged. Imagine how that went. Hey, Joseph, I uh, just want to let you know I'm pregnant. Don't worry, it's from God. Can you imagine? What do you mean it's from God? No, it's, it's from the Holy Spirit. It's a Savior to save and rescue all the people. Oh, okay, okay, Mary. Yeah, that nice excuse. What happens? You see, they're virgins. They're engaged. Mary has now told Joseph that she's pregnant, and she says it's from God. And it says that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. He loved Mary, but he wanted to break it off. He didn't believe that the child was from God. And, a, and an engagement back then would have been a contractual agreement, like a marriage. And so it would have required something like divorce to end the relationship. And so that was what Joseph is going to do. But then in a dream, God comes to Joseph and says, Mary is right. Believe your fiance. I have given you a child she has born a son in her that is from the Holy Spirit, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us, come to save his people. And then it says, right after that, Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 14, was fulfilled, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. So he starts this way, referring back to the book of Isaiah. We see Herod disturbed because he knows the book of Isaiah and the prophecies of this coming king. The wise men travel thousands of miles because they're familiar with the book of Isaiah to come and worship, as they say, the king of the Jews. And Jewish leaders and scholars are very familiar with this text. They understood this text. The different prophecies in chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 53. But they could have never imagined that Emmanuel, God with us, was a literal reality. You see, what the Jewish people believed, Matthew included, the wise men were probably trying to sort this out, Herod believed the same thing, is that the Messiah that was coming, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who would have the names of mighty counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, that would establish this kingdom that would have no end and peace and righteousness and justice, was not actually God in the flesh, but was a great prophet or teacher who God would essentially be behind and would help to bring the Jewish people out of their oppression. They were constantly oppressed by other countries. That he would establish a kingdom from the line of David that would be greater than David's kingdom. He would be a warrior type of king born with wealth and influence and power. The greatest figure that God's people have ever seen, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David. That's who they imagined. And so Matthew is writing, saying, I want your imagination to change into who this Emmanuel or Messiah actually is. You see, the Jews were the least likely people to believe that God would come to earth. The least likely. Eastern religions would be very open to the idea of God taking on the form of a human. Eastern religions then and still to this day believe that God is an impersonal force, an energy, the universe, whatever name you want to use, God is in everything and he's permeating everything. And so God or whatever word you want to use for God can manifest in a human being. People that followed Eastern religions would be open to this idea. The Western religions of the day would also be open to the idea of God being in the form of a human. The Greeks and the Romans of this time that believed in many gods, they were polytheistic, they believed that there were in fact deities walking among them. They believed that Zeus could be walking around as a human, but he would be devoid of his power. The Jews believed that God was personal, and yet he was infinite. They had no concept to believe that God could become flesh that God would inhabit a human body, that there could be such a thing as fully God and fully man. Because though the Jewish people believed that God was personal and engaged with his people, and he spoke through his word, through the Torah, and he engaged with his people through the Spirit, they did not imagine that God would become flesh. Why? Because God was infinite. He was transcendent. He was holy. You see, the Jewish concept of God was that God was so holy that you cannot say his covenantal name. That name was Yahweh. You can't say that. You can say Jehovah, Elohim, have different names for God, but you cannot say Yahweh. No concept for God becoming flesh. And Matthew writes, and the Christmas story shows that the 
gospel writers are causing people to say, you need to open your imagination because the way that you viewed these prophecies were wrong. Jesus is literally God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And he writes this because Matthew himself saw his concept of God change. You see, what we see in Matthew's life and the other disciples is that when they come to meet Jesus when he's about 30 years old, their imagination for who Jesus was was very similar to what I said. He was going to be a warrior. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to bring out the Jewish people from oppression. It's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is betrayed, Peter pulls out a sword. He thinks it's time to fight. They had, had no concept They believed that Jesus was God and Christ, but they could not understand that he was a Messiah and a Savior come to die. Fully God and fully man. And Matthew writes after the resurrection in this book, and he says, I want you to expand your concept of God. You see, Christmas should open your concept of who God is. Because Matthew wants you to see that the incarnation, that God becoming flesh, is a supreme miracle. It is a supreme miracle what we are celebrating here in this season. That God, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, and has always been such, became a baby. The very God who created all of creation and the universe willingly submitted himself to his very creation in the form of a child. There's a quote I want to read you that I think encapsulates this idea of who God is well. So you can see the scope of what Matthew is drawing us to see and what we believe in the incarnation at Christmas. Marshall Shelley says, speaking about God, within his own mysterious being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These designations are just ways in which God is God. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. You guys guys didn't know you were going to think tonight, huh? But see, Matthew wants you to see That God, who was always triune, who was always three in one, who was always Father, Son, and Spirit, inhabited the form of his very creation. You see, very in in the very beginning of Scripture, we are given a glimpse into this, and all throughout the Old Testament, we're given a glimpse and a picture and truth that God is in fact in community with himself, that he's three in one. But remember, There was no concept for this. We were so narrow-minded as people in our thinking, and yet Matthew's trying to expand that and to pull that out because in the very beginning of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, it says, let us make man in our image. God is in community with himself, three in one, in the very beginning of Scripture. But there's no imagination for why God would speak in plural. Why wouldn't it be... Just let me make man in my image, or I'm going to make man in my image, but yet it says let us make man in our image. You see, Matthew and the the gospel writers are calling us to see 
that there is something powerful about the incarnation when you actually take a step to consider what we believe, that God became flesh, that God is with us. Because in Christmas, one of the things that you're celebrating is that there is power in humility. There is power in humility. The Christmas story and the incarnation of God becoming flesh is one of the most humble things you could possibly imagine. The creator God humbling himself to come to rescue his people by taking on the form of a child. But there's power in that. You see, God didn't change when he came and took on the form of a human But yet, as he comes, he lays aside his divine power. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Christ Jesus, who was the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus Christ, who's the very nature of God, has the DNA of God, which means he's God himself. You cannot have God's nature and not be God. Now, we are are made in God's image and his likeness, but you want to raise your hand if you think you have the nature of God? None of us have the nature. of. We have a human nature. We have a broken nature, a flawed nature, and part of our life is that God is rebuilding our nature. He's making us more like him. But we don't have God's nature. But the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ had the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped because he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He demonstrated that there's actually power in humility because Jesus firmly accepted the reality that when he took on the form of a child, he would be not taking advantage of his divine power. Though he's still fully God, he's also fully man. He's limiting himself. He's humbling himself. And there is great power in that. It's incredible when you consider what we believe and not just run past it. It's so easy to run past what we believe in this season, that God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us but it was not a glamorous birth. Not at all. You see, God not only became a child, but he became a baby born to poor parents, to oppressed people, in a cold cave, with animals around, wrapped in discarded cloth, and laid in a feeding trough. This is Jesus' birth story. It's not glamorous. There's no pregnant mother that shows up to a hospital and is like, I'll take the cold cave uh, with the old rags and the feeding trough. I've always wanted that. It's been on my dream board. I've been cutting out in the magazine my whole life. Nobody chooses that birth story, and yet God himself chose that birth story. Why? Because there is power in humility. But there's not only power in humility, there's beauty in humility. You see, you read that story, and there's something beautiful about it. You, you may not want to claim that as your own, But it is beautiful to consider that the God of the universe became the form of a child, was born in a cave to poor parents, placed in a feeding trough and wrapped in 
discarded rags. Why? To see that there's power and beauty in humility. Look what Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, revealing this hundreds of years before Jesus is born. For he, speaking about this Emmanuel, this Savior, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty, no form, no majesty that you would desire him. Nobody wants that birth story, and yet it's the God of the universe's birth story into his very own creation. Beauty and power and humility. It's unbelievable. Have you ever asked this, yourself the question, what's the Christmas spirit? Some of you are like, I don't know, but I don't like it. I'm done with it. Like, what is the Christmas spirit? If you had to define the Christmas spirit, how would you define it? What would you say? I think when we kind of pull it all together, it would be about giving and generosity. So much of the Christmas spirit is about generosity. It's about sacrificing for others. It's about giving, giving to the potluck tonight for those of you that brought. It's giving to your local charity or an organization that you're involved with or pledging to your church, right? December is the biggest giving month of the year by far. You go to retail stores and the grocery store and who's out front? Santa. And he's ringing a bell and he's asking for your change for Salvation Army, right? There's all these opportunities to give. Many of you participated in Operation Christmas Child to to take your time and to take your money and to assemble a box of Christmas presents for a child that would never otherwise receive one. It's about giving. It's about generosity. And we're excited about that. Like, literally on Christmas, we exchange gifts. We give gifts to each other. It's about giving and generosity. Why? Why is the Christmas spirit about giving and generosity? Where did that come from? The incarnation. The Christmas story. God giving himself to his creation to rescue his creation. Isn't that amazing? And when you consider that, when you think about the humility of Jesus Christ, of God himself, the power and the beauty in that, what it should cause you to do is to reevaluate all of the goals that you're setting up for the next year. You see, what happens in Christmas, if you're like me, is that you're focused on Christmas, you're getting through Christmas, you're doing the parties, you're excited, you're trying to enjoy it as best as you can, and then after Christmas, your, your brain switches. Now it's time to prepare for the next year. You get your resolutions together, you, you think about your vision, what do you want to accomplish? And I think Christmas causes you to reevaluate your goals, and I hope this is a, a challenge to you this year. After Christmas, as you begin to make your resolutions, Christmas and the Christmas spirit should cause you to reevaluate your goals. Essentially, to ask yourself the question, when I lay out all of my resolutions and when I lay out my goals for 2020, which side does it fit on? Am I either concerned with building a comfortable, safe network of assets and relationships and opportunities so that I can increase my level of living and enjoyment? 
Are all my goals focused on improving myself and my network, creating more safety and more comfort and more experiences? Or when I think about my goals and I list out my goals for 2020, am I concerned with looking at my network and my assets and my relationships and my opportunities and my influence and saying, God, how do you want me to steward these for other people? How do you want me to use these? How do you want me to humble myself and lay these things before you and allow you to direct them? The question is, which one does the Christmas story inform? See, the birth of our Savior informs much more than just a holiday season. It informs even the way that we plan our New Year's resolutions and look at our goals, because when we view this story as the supreme miracle, it changes everything. Some people have argued, some theologians and scholars have argued that the incarnation, the Christmas story, Jesus becoming a child, is more profound and is a greater miracle than the resurrection. Why? Because what we're celebrating is that Jesus is God with us, who was like us and is for us. That's what we're celebrating in this season. Jesus was with us, he was like us, and he is for us. That's staggering. I want you to, I want you to be honest. Raise your hand if you have had doubts about Christianity and your faith. I'm raising my hand because I've had them. Have you had them? Okay. Raise your hand if you have a difficult time when you read the life of Jesus and a lot of the miracles that are performed. Raise your hand if you have a hard time believing some of those. No one? Okay, well, I have. Okay. You're in good company. I think about it all the time. It's difficult to read and and to be removed from 2,000 years and be like, okay, Jesus walked on water, healed the the blind, he made the lame walk, he multiplied food, like a lot of food. He brought a dead guy back to life, and then he himself came back to life. Like, it's not just like you just say that and believe it. We have to wrestle through that. It's difficult to believe in miracles because how many of you have seen them? We see them all the time. We may notice them, but how many times have you seen somebody walk on the water? Chris Angel doesn't count, okay? It wasn't real. There's a little glass board under there, okay? We don't see that, yet it's difficult to believe and to wrestle through. But see, listen, all of the doubts that we have lead back to Christmas. It's a faulty view of Christmas. That doesn't make any sense. If you believe that Jesus was literally God in the flesh, born as a baby, the Savior, God with us, come to rescue and to save his people, would you doubt that he could walk on water? Would you doubt that he could bring somebody back from the dead and even himself? See, it originates here, what we're celebrating in this season. The incarnation is a supreme miracle. There is power in humility. There is beauty in humility. 
But we have to step back from the commercialized nature of this season and look at the Christmas that is really hidden away from us. A Christmas that is celebrating that the God of the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, took on the form, humbling himself to become a child to rescue and to save his people. That Jesus was God with us, like us, and for us. Unbelievable to consider that. That God arrived here 2,000 years ago. And we're still celebrating that day. That first Christmas. You see, the reason that we should take some time to consider this and that we engage in this every Advent and that the, the writers of the Gospels in the New Testament start with his birth is not just because chronologically it makes sense to start with his birth, but because there is a miracle taking place here that is important to see because it should change your entire concept of who God is. You see, if God is just holy, he would have never come to earth. Never. If God is just holy, he would never come to earth because he would just require you to improve your goodness, to become more righteous, to become more moral yourself, to be better at obedience, to get more disciplined, and to improve yourself. And once you improve yourself enough and follow the rules enough, that would merit a relationship with God. This is how Jews function and Muslims function. This is their concept of God. He's holy, would never come to earth to earn your way into relationship. Then we have the modern concept of God. Modern 2019, going into 2020 concept of God. And that concept of God is that God is all loving and he embraces everyone. There's no thought of holiness. Yes, you believe in God and you should be a good person, but because God is love, you just receive God as love and you try to love other people and as long as you're trying to do that, that's good enough and God will overlook your sin, your mistakes, your lies, whatever it may be. He will overlook it because he is love and as long as you receive his love and you love other people, you're good. It's this relativistic view of God, but that God would never come to earth. There's no reason. Why would that God come to earth? This is going to overlook sin anyway, but see, the God that we worship here tonight is holy and loving. He cannot overlook sin, but he also loves his people. He loves his people so much that he would humble himself to take the form of a child to come to rescue and to save, that he would come to be with us and like us and for us. That is the Christmas story, that Jesus, who is king of kings, was born in a non-glamorous way, because he's welcoming all people to himself. By grace through faith, you can be a part of his family. It should change your entire concept of who God is. He doesn't just overlook sin. He came to die for it. And he came here to earth to reveal to you that he is for you. Some of us just need to hear that during this season. That God is for me. So if you doubt that God is for you, remember what we're celebrating. He came for you. To demonstrate his love being born that first Christmas and then his life culminating in the cross. And that was prophesied about too. You see, that passage, Isaiah chapter 53, it goes on and it reveals something striking about this king that will come. 
something really interesting, that his life will not play out the way that you would imagine, talks about how he will die and what he will sacrifice. You see, when you come to see Jesus in, for who he is, that he's God in the flesh, God with you, like you, for you, it sets you in motion one of two ways. And here's what I want to challenge you tonight. If you have met Jesus, you will either act like Herod or like the wise men. When you look at who Jesus is and consider the real Christmas story, not the one that is commercialized before us, but the one that is often hidden away, who Jesus really is, that he is God in the flesh come to save you. When you see that, it sets you in motion, and it either disturbs you and agitates you to where you want to run from it and you want to maybe destroy it and get it out of your life, like Herod, or it revolutionizes your life and causes you to take everything and bring gifts to worship at his feet. There's one of two reactions. And if you have not had one of those two reactions, you've never met Jesus. You've never met him. Maybe you've attended mass and you've attended church and you've done Christmas for however many years of your life, but you've never met Jesus if you weren't agitated by him or drawn to worship him. He sets you in motion one way or the other because his life is a life that revolutionizes who you are because he's like you and with you and for you. And he demonstrated it ultimately on the cross and his death and his resurrection. And Isaiah prophesied this hundreds of years before. And so I want to leave you with that. If you text it in, you can pull up the notes in Isaiah chapter 53. I just want to read this and close this way. And this will actually prepare us to come to the table in a moment to receive communion. Oh, we almost burned the building down. That would set you in motion. This, this building got burned down. Thank you, Melissa. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4. Read along and just absorb this. This is the Christmas story of what we celebrate culminates in. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He's for you. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities or sin. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that astounding? Astounding. Jesus' life written hundreds of years before it actually played out. His birth prophesied, born of a virgin, a child who was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with you, come to save you. I pray this Christmas season that you see behind the curtain and you see that God is in fact with you and he is for you because he died for you. Will you pray with me? God, if I'm honest, it's difficult to consider, to really wrap my mind around the reality that you, as the holy, all-powerful creator God, became a baby, and yet you did. Your Your birth story is not what you would expect, not what I would expect, and yet it's what you chose because You sought to reveal to us power and beauty and humility. God, we thank you for the beauty of your word that reveals that you have been preparing your people for hundreds of years for what would take place on that first Christmas that many didn't fully understand what it meant that you would save your people, but after about 33 years, it was made very evident. Thank you, God, for not only coming here, born like us, with us, but thank you for being for us, for dying and laying your life down smitten and afflicted, carrying our guilt and our shame and our sin so that we could be free, that we could celebrate, that we could sing hallelujah to you, God. Will we not squander that gift and get so focused on everything else this season? Would you refresh us tonight? with the power of humility ultimately culminating in you willingly laying down your life for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.